This is Star Talk. Welcome to Star Talk All Stars. I'm David Grinspoon, aka Dr. Funky Spoon on Twitter. And I'll be your host today, and I'm joined by my co-host, Chuck Nice. Hey, David. What's up, Dr. Funky Spoon? How's it going, Chuck? It's doing well, man. How about you? It's been a little while since we've been together in studio. It has been a while. It's great to be uh, back with you here in in front of the microphones. Absolutely, my friend. Yeah. All right. And uh, um, today on Star Talk All-Stars, we're going to um, do something a little bit different. It's um, a kind of cosmic queries that uh, we, we might sort of call, are you smarter than an eighth grader? Uh, my, uh, I, I have an answer. I have an answer. No. No, I am not. Wouldn't that depend on the eighth grader? No. In my case, pretty much no is the answer. I'm just going to go with that, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to be right. Well. Especially the eighth graders that I know. Well, Chuck, are you funnier than an eighth grader? Now, that's definite. <laughs> yes. And, it, and it, whether you're laughing with me or at me, <laughs> yeah, that's right. I, I'm telling you, that's where I will, that's where I'm a Viking. That's where you'll make your stand. That's where I'll yeah. make my stand. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, so, so what happened here was um, I sort of had the opportunity to uh, interact with a group of eighth graders from uh, from Chula Vista, California. Okay. And, and I've never actually met these kids, but uh, and I'll tell you a little bit later a little bit more about how uh, it, it was an, a sort of online virtual connection. Cool. But uh, I, I uh, had the opportunity to talk to them about astrobiology and tell them a little bit about myself and what I do uh, over, the, over the interwebs. Wow. And then, and then they got back to me with a whole bunch of questions. And they started sort of, they peppered me with these questions. And and I was just amazed. I was like, are these really eighth graders or is somebody pulling my leg? Yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of like, um, you know, when you go online and uh, you think you're talking to a really sexy woman, but it's really a fat, greasy guy sitting in a basement. And you're like, hmm, do these eighth graders have like, I don't know, their own little astrobiological Cyrano de Bergerac working with them? What's going on? Yeah, I understand. Or, or on the internet, how do, you know, how do you know it's not really a smart dog typing at you? You don't even know it's a person. You know? That's so true. So true. But, yeah. So, so, so anyways, but... But, but it, you were impressed. But, no, I was impressed. These are verified eighth graders. But, and, and the questions were so good and these kids were so smart. And I, and I was so sort of encouraged by that because, uh, you know, right now a lot of people are kind of down maybe a little bit about the future and what's coming and... And, uh, you and know, it, whether, is, is, is it that is that because they know pretty much the eighth graders that that all of us know and that we're all doomed or or maybe there's another event that has happened? Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, you know, have you uh, have you I'm joking. Have I know you, exactly. Have you seen or heard about the movie Idiocracy? Yes. I mean, some By people feel as though that now is becoming more and more like an actual uh, documentary of the future. So yeah, <laughs> so, I'm one of those people, Doctor yeah, Funky Spoon. Yeah, so so um, but but you know, I, I'm encouraged both by the fact that if you look at how the youth voted in this recent election, it's not the young people that are really the the problem. And furthermore, when I interact with students like these students mm-hmm. and see what they know, they know so much more than I or anybody who's a scientist now knew, I think, when the, when they were in eighth grade, yeah. that it made me feel like, you know, if we can just kind of keep this world going until this generation inherits Dies things, off. Yeah, till we die off and mm-hmm. they take over, that maybe, that, that maybe we'll be okay, because these, these kids are smart. And so I just thought, well, let's do, uh, 
these are great questions. So I thought, yeah. well, let's let's do a cosmic queries and, and uh, answer uh, some of these eighth grade questions. I'm a, I'm impressed that any of the questions. I'm looking at the questions right now, as a matter of fact, and. Uh, you know, um, I'm normally impressed by the cosmic queries that we receive from our listening audience. We have a very well-informed listening audience. The Star Talk audience, uh, you know, they, they tend to be above average intelligence. They tend to be professionals. Um, and for the most part, what I appreciate about, appreciate about them most, um, uh, aside from their being very opinionated and, you know, going online and sometimes telling me how much they don't like me. Um, uh, uh, other than that, uh, what you're, so, you're saying those people aren't smart, the ones that don't like you, <laughs> <laughs> everyone else is. Yeah, those are the those are the new listeners to the show. No, um, but 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 what I'm really impressed with uh, is is how intellectually curious they are and the uh, the quality of the questions that we receive from these people online. And so I'm looking at some of the questions from these eighth graders right now, and I have to tell you. Um, I can't believe they're eighth graders, you know, um, because if I was in the eighth grade right now, my question to you would be, <laughs> what is an astrobiologist? And that would be like pretty much the extent of the questions I'm going to ask you. Speaking of that, what, what's an astrobiologist? <laughs> <laughs> An astrobiologist is somebody that, that uh, gets away with um, saying they're a scientist and they're looking for aliens. Um, you know, it's, nice. it's, it's, you know, what it really is, is a scientific study of the potential for life in the universe. So, oh, cool. So we, you know, the astro part, we uh, study the conditions on other planets as we learn about them with spacecraft and telescopes and models. And the bio part, we study the history and the limits of life on Earth. Mm -hmm. And all that knowledge together um, gives us some insight into where in the universe there might be life and how we can search for it. Wow, that's pretty cool, man. Yeah, that's, that's astrobiology. Cool. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's something that's been kind of exploding recently with all of our spacecraft missions to other planets. Yeah, absolutely. All this discovery of all that. these exoplanets now around other stars. That's There's a right. lot of places to look where something might be going on. And even, um, you know, our, like the, like the Philae landing and things like that, we, we glean more information that way for about what's happening out in the cosmos. And Yeah, and with Philae, we find out that, as we suspected, that comets are made out of the stuff of life. Nice. You know, they're, they're, they're all this organic, juicy organic stuff is out there floating around the universe and might just be uh, forming organisms like it did a long time ago on Earth. Wow. That is That's very exciting as well. Absolutely. So listen, I guess what we should do right now is jump into the questions from our eighth graders that uh, you had the opportunity to correspond with. Yeah, these are these are, these kids are from the Arroyo Vista Charter School in Chula Vista, California, mm -hmm. and they really are eighth graders. Wow. Okay. So uh, here's the you know I'm just going to start at the top just uh, in, instead of randomly stabbing about, uh, but um, uh, this is from Christian P. Uh, by the way, these are eighth graders. We are not allowed to use their full names because uh, that would be creepy. <laughs> uh, uh, this is what Christian P. wants to know, uh, Dr. Funky Spoon. Uh, what unique aspects does our planet have that differentiate it from other planets, and what other planets have some of these same traits? What allows life to thrive? Uh, uh, very well thought out question, Christian P., and a two-parter there. So, yeah. so what, are, what are the aspects of our planet that differentiate it for the purposes of creating life? And then uh, what other planets may have these traits where we can look for perhaps the creation of life? Yeah, I mean, it's such a good question. Yeah. And 
Um, and I'm going to answer it on a, you know, not necessarily on an eighth grade level because these kids I've learned can handle any level. So I'm right. just going to answer it, you know, like. Uh, so you mean your answer isn't, excuse me, Christian, duh. Exactly. <laughs> no, yeah. Yeah. No, my. Like, who doesn't know that, Christian? <laughs> yeah. Come on, Christian. Come on, Christian. Everybody Christian. knows that. God. No, no. It's, you know, it's a great question because, um, you know, the. The honest answer is it's a little bit of guesswork because we only have one planet with life. And so we won't really know the answer until we find other life and learn what it needs and what we have in common with it. But Mm -hmm. what we strongly suspect is that the important things about Earth that really allow it to to support life have to do with liquid water. Right. And that involves a certain climate range. If you have a planet uh, like Mars that's so frozen that you basically can't have liquid water – or a planet like Venus that's so hot that all water would boil instantly, then um, we think those aren't good places for life. So we're looking for a planet in a certain range of temperatures where you might have liquid water, but also um, some kind of stable surface environment and maybe some kind of, you know, Earth also has this kind of geologic activity, this churning interior, what we call plate tectonics, which is just the, the surface of the Earth sort of squishing around mm-hmm. and making geology. And that feeds life. It feeds um, new nutrients and chemicals. So Earth has this, um, the geological and the climate conditions that seem to add up to be a good place for, for now. Life. For now, that was a yeah. climate joke, people. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you very much. If, if 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 we don't if we don't mess it up, <laughs> we don't right, mess it up. Right now, we've got a, a great climate. So, um, as far as differenti- differentiating from other planets, what we think we need to do is look for other planets with a climate sort of similar to Earth, meaning with liquid water, oceans on the surface, mm. and then also as a you know sort of bonus points for a planet, I would say a level of geologic activity mm-hmm. like Earth's. You know, if if a planet is totally dead right. like Mars is, where there's no volcanoes, no earthquakes, to me that makes it less likely to uh, be alive because you don't have this sort of churning of the interior, which feeds nutrients into the right. into the environment for life. Now, did did Mars ever have that at one point? Was there ever a vibrant geo? Geological active activity uh, happening on Mars. Yeah, yeah. All the signs point to that. You know, we're there with our rovers digging around in the dirt, and we've got our orbiters there, and we keep finding more and more evidence that Mars did indeed have those exact qualities when it was young, both a climate that was warmer and wetter. Mm-hmm. We know that because we see the rivers and right. you know all these channels that are dried out now, and also more geologic activity. That Mars is full of volcanoes, but they're sort of dead they're volcanoes. Dead volcanoes but at one point, it had that vibrant geological activity. It had that warmer climate. So uh, personally, I'm not that optimistic about finding life on Mars today, but I think it's a great place to go look for fossils. And we're doing that. We're going to be doing that. And and guess what? I mean, if you find fossilized life, you have still found life. I mean, the record of life is still life, right? I mean, it's it's the proof of life. Absolutely. If we found fossils on Mars... You know, it would be right up there with, um, I would argue that, you know, the greatest scientific finding ever. It doesn't have to be a living organism. That would be interesting. Mm -hmm. But in some ways, I like a Mars that's dead today and was alive in the past. Because if Mars is dead today, it doesn't restrict what we can go do there ethically. You know, we can go do whatever we want if it's a a vacant lot that's not occupied. Oh, my new uh, hashtag, dump on Mars. (laughs) 
There you go. Do whatever you want, baby. Well, Mars is dead. Well, violate it all you want. Well, you know, I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't have spoken so loosely, so that so that Chuck could misinterpret me like that. But you know what I mean. It's like if there's a biosphere there, if there's creatures that we could be harming, then we have to tread a little bit more lightly. Right. I'm not saying we should necessarily go fill up Mars with you know strip malls and and strip clubs and you know strip mines. But uh, but (laughs) we shouldn't just go strip Mars. I'm going to say two out of those three. Two out of those three things I'm against. So I don't want to know which two. I, I, listen, I'm, I'm just saying just two out of three, but I'm not going to go there. All right? So, wow, that's good stuff. Well, Christian P., I got to tell you, man, impressive, impressive question to get us off to a very good start here. Uh, let's move on and take a question uh, from Joseph L. And Joseph says, what is one of the most interesting pieces of evidence that there is extraterrestrial and when and where have we discovered this evidence so it doesn't necessarily have to be definitive but is there anything that has piqued the interest of scientists that says whoa yeah yeah it's a great question so what is the evidence that there is extraterrestrial life Mm -hmm. uh you know it's an interesting thing because if you ask most scientists do you believe in extraterrestrial life do you believe do you believe it's there most of them will say yes i believe it and yet and yet it's strange because do we have that solid evidence no Mm -hmm. so here we are scientists saying we believe in something without evidence isn't that faith but scientists you know aren't supposed to just be guided by faith so it's a weird kind of belief but the the evidence for that, that supports that belief is the evidence about the number of planets we found mm-hmm. and the way those planets seem to have, every, as far as we can tell, the right characteristics that, that right. would make them have a similar history to Earth mm-hmm. in the ways that count for life. So these, so, are, these are Earth-like planets that we know in the, in the let's just keep it to our galaxy, there's millions of them, right? Yeah, as far as we can tell, you know, we're still trying to understand what all those planets are like. But now we know now we know they're there, and some of them we know the mass. We're just starting to get the instruments that will allow us to see, well, what are those atmospheres made out of? Is something breathing there? That's the next right. step. Right. But just the sheer numbers is a kind of evidence. But then, you know, the, the other way to interpret Joseph L.'s excellent question is, you know, is there any evidence that we've got that could mean there's life somewhere? And, and the answer is yes. There are a couple of things that are not definitive, but they're suggestive. For instance, um, on Mars, with the rovers and with orbiters, we found these little whiffs of methane gas, CH4, mm. methane, that shouldn't be there, shouldn't be on Mars unless there's something weird happening. Mm-hmm. And that weird thing could be life. After all, on Earth, most of the methane in the atmosphere is created by microorganisms. Right. So, and there are also little whiffs of methane gas here that shouldn't be as well. Here in this room. <laughs> what did you have for lunch, Chuck? No. Um, but uh, be that as it may. Um, <laughs> you took me off guard there, Dr. Funky Spoon. Sorry. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, methane is a byproduct of all kinds of yes. life, sometimes right. unpleasant, but, it, but, but there are other things that make methane that aren't biological. And so on Mars, it doesn't necessarily mean there's life, but it's suggestive and it's something that we kind of want to check out further. You know, it's an right. interesting hint. And then there have been a couple other things. Um, you know, SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, mm-hmm. has got a couple little signals that some people thought, ah, wait a minute. Um, and nothing, you know, they're, they're sort of wispy hints. Like there's right. there's a famous one called the wow signal. The wow signal. Which looked 
like an alien signal. But then, you know, the protocol is you have to go back and, and identify it again to make sure it wasn't some artifact or mistake. When they went back, um, they uh, never saw it again. So, so that doesn't count in terms of the protocol for evidence. And yet some people look back at so that signal so, and they go, well, that could have been, that could have so been. So speaking of that, and, and, and with respect to uh, Joseph L.'s question, what exactly is the protocol? Because I know we're coming up against a break, but now that you mentioned that, is, what, what, what do you guys, when you say a protocol for life, what is that? Well, so the, the problem is, you know, specifically with SETI, there's so much possibility of a false alarm. Mm-hmm. You, you, just because there's a signal, what if it was interference from Earth, which a couple of the false alarms have proven to be? Right. What if it's just some glitch in your equipment? So how do you protect against false alarms? So that's why why we have this protocol where if you detect something, first you get somebody from another telescope at a different part of the Earth to observe it too, so then it's not some local interference. Right. And second, you have to go back to the same part of the sky and see if it's still there. So what if, what if it was some satellite that was passing in front? You know? Okay, okay. And um, so the funny thing is, though, you could miss something that way because um, maybe there's some actual signal that is just a ship-to-ship communication and it's just there for a second, and you might really pick it up. Uh, so the wow signal could have been a real alien signal, but according to our protocol, we don't accept it. We have to be sort of conservative about this. It's mm-hmm. sort of the opposite of a UFO aficionado who any little blip, they'll go, aha, right. that proves it. Exactly. We, you know, we are, Somebody threw a flashlight in the sky and it's like, yeah. oh my God, it's an invasion. We're okay. perhaps overly conservative, but you can understand why. We don't want to just be going off with false alarms all the time. Right. So uh, we're still waiting for that definite... SETI signal that satisfies all those protocols. Cool, man. That's very cool. Well, Joseph, I got to tell you, uh, once again, impressive. I'm going to stop saying that because yeah. every single one of these kids is impressive. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think we're uh, going to have to take a break here mm-hmm. now. But then when we come back, we'll uh, answer some more of these questions. And I think we'll also uh, maybe try to get the teacher on the line of these kids, and we'll tell you a little bit more of the experience of this this uh, weird kind of uh, non-localized teaching experience I had with these kids. Awesome. All right, welcome back to Star Talk All-Stars. I'm David Grinspoon, your host today. I'm here with Chuck Nice. Hey. And we're, we're doing Cosmic Queries, the eighth grade edition. Yeah. And we're going to bring on uh, a guest now, um, we've got uh, Daniel Peluso, who's, a, who's an eighth grade teacher at a Royal Vista Charter School. Oh, my condolences. <laughs> in Chula oh, Vista, California. How are you doing, Daniel? Can you hear us? Hi, guys. How's it going? Hey, Daniel. It's going great. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. Let, let, before, uh, before we uh, ask you some questions, let me just explain uh, how this all happened. So, uh, Daniel was a, a student at... Um, in Pittsburgh at the, uh, was it, wait, is it University of Pittsburgh, Daniel? Yep, that's right. Yeah, Daniel's a student at the University of Pittsburgh, and uh, he arranged for me to come up there and give a talk about astrobiology, um, which was really, really nice, and I had a great experience up there. And then um, we stayed in touch, and then about a year later, uh, he was uh, he informed me, hey, I'm out of school, and now I'm teaching eighth-grade science 
at this school in uh, in California down near the uh, Mexican border. Mm. And would you uh, do me a favor and uh, talk to my kids remotely over the internet? And of course, I thought, oh God, I, oh God, I gotta go but, talk to these sweat hogs. But, okay, I just, I can't believe how I just dated myself. <laughs> I can't believe I just did. I made a welcome back Cotter reference. That was not what I thought, but something <laughs> like that, but more modern. But thought. more modern, yeah, yeah, right, exactly. exactly. But then, but anyways, I, I gotta go be Michelle Pfeiffer to these. Never mind. Uh, go ahead, go ahead. But but anyways, uh, you know, but it was partly, hey, return the favor because he really helped me out a lot with his lecture up, up in Pittsburgh, and okay. it was a great guy, and I we hung out a little bit. I enjoyed talking to them. But, but honestly, it's always a great experience to go and talk to kids of different ages. And so it didn't take much convincing. But what was amazing was, so I, I recorded a little video about astrobiology and sent it off and, and Daniel um, showed it to these kids. And then um, he somehow, I don't know what he did with these kids, but then these incredible questions started coming back as mm-hmm. we've been hearing. And it, and it just made me um, think about a lot of things about you know, how cool it is that we're so connected these days that right. we can have uh, a classroom that spans from Washington, D.C., where I was, to California, where these kids were. With That's it, exciting. With this weird technology that we're using. And then also just what – I don't know if, it's, if he's the best teacher in the world or, or what, but, like, boy, these kids have it going on. So, so Daniel, uh, wel- welcome to uh, Star Talk All-Stars. And, um, oh. and, and tell us a little bit about, um, wh- you know, what did you do to those kids? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, are you standing in the front of the classroom with a shotgun? Like, you know. <laughs> uh, no. Well, first off, uh, it's a pleasure being on the show. I've been a longtime fan, and um, thank you very much for having me on. So, you know, it's, it's always been a dream of mine to, uh, you know, like, like your colleague, Bill Nye, likes to say to, you know, change the world, change right? Change the so, world. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, So, you know, getting into science education, um, I wanted to make sure that, you know, I I brought in a sense of inspiration and wonder. And and luckily, uh, when I started teaching at Oriel Vista, I was uh, coming in right when they were doing their astronomy units. And that's my favorite thing. So I um, decided that they were going to learn about astrobiology. So, I mean, we learned basics of astronomy. And then... um, I brought in the aspect of astrobiology. They learned about how to find constellations in the night sky and the deep space objects that lie within the boundaries of those constellations. And when they were learning about this, I introduced, um, I believe it's um, Arecibo Telescope message that was sent out by uh, Carl Sagan to right. M13. Right. So they learned about they learned about M13, that globular cluster in the uh, Hercules constellation, which is like twenty five thousand light years nice. away. And, I did not learn about them. that. I did not learn about that in eighth grade. I can tell you right now. Yeah, uh, you know, I learned about it three weeks ago when uh, <laughs> Dr. Emily Rice and Summer Ash told me uh, about the Messier objects. So nice. Yeah, there you go. I didn't learn. I didn't learn about it when I was in eighth grade either. So we're we're not we're not alone. But you know, that doesn't mean we can't change the next generation, right? So you know, they they learned about that and that introduced astrobiology. And then I said, actually. I have an incoming message right now coming through electromagnetic radiation signals. And then I showed Dr. Grinspoon's pre-recorded video. And he's like, hello, eighth grade students at Oreo Vista Charter School. And you should have saw their faces. They like, they like, you know, their minds were blown and they thought it was so amazing. And, um, you know, of course, I told them a little about Dr. Grinspoon beforehand. Some of them actually knew him because they do they did uh, um, 
some presentations through PowerPoint on the different planets, and they showed an old National Geographic Channel documentary <laughs> where uh, a younger David Grinspoon was talking about uh, Venus. Looked just so some like of them me, knew him from that. Looked just like yeah. me, but had hair, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so that's kind of what, what brought that about. And then they, they created some questions um, after, you know, I gave them a little bit more background on what astrobiology is. And after they saw Dr. Grinspoon's video, and I uh, scanned them all and sent them to, to David. And, you know, the rest is history. And here we are. Yeah, it's it's so cool, and and um, I mean, astrobiology is not a normal part. I think it didn't used to be of eighth grade science education, but the way you're approaching it makes so much sense because kids think aliens are cool. They've seen all those movies, and it's a way to tap into their their wonder and teach them science. So yeah, that's you know that's a really good point. I never even thought about that, but there's <laughs> well, so well, many alien movies, mm-hmm. and it's it really is a a global obsession. I yep. mean, yep. everything from UFOs to Transformers the movie, right. if you think about it. Right. So they've all, they've all been exposed to the idea. So why not use it to tap into that and teach some science? And it sounds like that's what you've been able to do, Daniel. Let me ask you, I mean, you, you're using those, uh, the next generation science standards, right? Yes. Um, and uh-huh. As that, in Star Trek, the next generation. <laughs> okay, all right. Why don't you? Why don't you? Picard. Why don't you say briefly what those are, and then is that a challenge for you to um, to integrate this kind of material that's probably not in the textbook, and still uh, teach them what you're supposed to teach them with these these uh, standard uh, these standards. Well, I'd say for me, no. So I'm a new I'm a newer teacher, and you know I kind of have a different perspective on the universe and our place in it and how I want to go about education. But luckily, the next generation science standards kind of fits in with uh, how I want to approach education. Can you just say the, what the they idea, are for our readers that have it, never it, heard of it? Exactly. So, uh, so there's the Common Core State Standards, which you know some people might be aware of. And those were developed, at least in California, back in 1998. So there hasn't been a revision in the standards, you know, for almost 20 years. And the old standards are more about um, an information dump. So the teacher stands up at front, they have all the information, and they have a shovel of knowledge, and they try to shovel that knowledge into the brains of the students, right? Uh, so it's, you know, based off of rote memorization mm-hmm. and the next generation science standard. That, that sounds is, familiar. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So that is familiar probably to mostly everybody. And standards is trying to change that by uh, introducing what they call three-dimensional learning. So they have uh, the three dimensions of learning, which is science and engineering practices, cross um cross-cutting principles, and disciplinary core ideas. So astrobiology is not mm-hmm. part of that, right? So was that challenging for you to, to fit it in, or did it just naturally uh, work, work its way in? No, I, it wasn't challenging for me because, you know, astrobiology is a multidisciplinary science, you know, and it, it involves astronomy, it involves biology, it involves physics, it involves chemistry, et cetera, you know. So, uh, you know, for me as a teacher, you know, I think that, you know, wonder, inspiration and curiosity, drive, passion, and, you know, tenacious actions, those are what make the most astounding inventions, scientific theories, discoveries, art, literature, technological advancements, et cetera. And if you teach chemistry without telling students that, you know, the, the natural elements on the periodic table formed in the crucibles of stars and that they're made out of star stuff or, or biology without talking about astrobiology, then I think you're robbing students of a possible spark to drive them into a career of making, you know, some amazing, ex- you know, discoveries and getting them really interested in, 
you know, the, the science and want to learn it. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I'm getting the impression now that part of what's going on here, because Chuck and I were looking at these and going, come on, what's with these eighth graders? Yeah, I, I, to be honest, Daniel, we thought you wrote them. No, but I think part of what's going on is that I'm realizing these kids are really lucky to have you as a teacher because obviously you've got the right attitude and, uh, you know, you're standing up there and, and, and uh, you're doing more than, than shovel. <laughs> but it, it, also, it also makes me think, and, and, and you know, I think, of, I think of my schooling and I had some, some really bad teachers that, were, you know, made me almost want to leave science. And then I had a few really good ones that, that were so inspiring, and I still remember everything they said. I had a, I had a chemistry teacher. You just reminded me who he told us about about Buna S rubber, which was like the invention of this synthetic rubber. And then he told us this whole story about World War II and the tank treads and how the invention of this rubber and led to this pivotal battle. And he was like connecting the uh, the, the chemistry to these like really dramatic human stories. And yeah. it sounds like that's the kind of thing you try to do. And that's 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 really really wonderful. It also makes me think that the science standards, I've heard a lot of people complain about these standards, but the way you're describing it, it sounds like maybe it's an improvement. Like, are, are we getting better at teaching because, because we've learned uh, some important things about what's, what's right and what's wrong? And, and, on a, and, and just as an addendum to that, uh, when you speak about standards, well, what is the best way to judge whether or not children are indeed absorbing, processing, and more importantly, uh, developing critical thinking about the information that they receive? That's a really good question. And, you know, I think educators, you know, constantly, you know, struggle with, with you know, finding the right answer for that. I mean, as far as, far as standards go, you know, it, it's good that, you know, we have the next generation science standards and it does open up a lot of doors, you know, to have a different, you know, perspective and, and you know, including those engineering practices. But you got to think, too, we, if we're going to teach science, we also need to, you know, have our standards adhere to the same principles that it aims to teach, meaning, you know, it needs to adapt and change when new evidence and best practices for science education comes about. You know, that, that's the process of science. So I, I think students need to, to learn that process. Um, and, you know, the, the next generation science standards aren't, you know, the, the all, you know, and be all of, you know, standards. We need to get better always. You know, as far as uh, finding out if, you know, students are, are learning, I mean, you, you have exams, but, you know, you can't, you can't, you know, just base it off exams. You need to involve the students in writing and, and building models. And, mm -hmm. you know, it needs to be more like real life. So I, that's, that's I spent I my entire uh, academic career trying to uh, convince all of my teachers that uh, it, we needed more than exams to figure out how well I'm doing here. So I know what you're talking about. Well, and yeah, look, and, and look at you mm -hmm. now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, and, and uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, I, I've heard him say many times that we know, know him. It, yeah, you guys know him. <laughs> yeah, you know, I've heard him say many times that you know. Students who just worry about grades, they're going to be more likely to take an easier course. They're not going to challenge themselves in taking a physics class, you know, because yeah. they're, they're worried about their GPA. And, you know, the education system is based off of a high GPA. And, you know, who's who has a better chance of getting uh, critically, you know, a better critical thinking Um Someone who's taken a physics class or someone who, who hasn't. I think, you know, the person who's taken a science classes might, might you know, have developed their critical thinking a little bit more. Do you have a lot of pressure to um, spend time preparing for standardized tests? I mean, that's something that people complain about a lot these days. Um, is that something that you are really aware of in the environment where, where you're teaching? Not yet. So, you know, I, I just graduated from the University of Pittsburgh you know, last, last year. And so, you know, this is my first year out in California teaching. 
And uh, so far, I'm at a charter school, you know, which, you know, you, you have a little bit more flexibility, you know, so but that is something that, you know, I, I am fearful of in my future. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see. <laughs> I mean, you sound so uh, unjaded, enthusiastic. <laughs> and um, yeah, I think those kids are lucky to get you in this stage. Mm-hmm. We and, should- it, and is that because you're a new teacher and you haven't been uh, beaten down yet? Uh, I'm joking. That's what I'm wondering. <laughs> That's what I'm wondering. I mean, do, do you do you plan to um, keep teaching, or are, is this a phase for you? Um, because when I met you, you were um, doing all this, um, you're learning all this science, and I thought, oh, this guy could go on and be be a research scientist. Uh, you know, you've got those chops. But then when I heard you were teaching, I thought, right on, you know, because that's the most important job in our society, and it's often undervalued in the scientific community, unfortunately. So I'm just curious. I mean, you seem to be a man of many talents. Uh, is, is teaching in your future? Oh, definitely. I mean, uh, you know, first off, I decided to go into teaching because of the high pay. I <laughs> uh, had to put that joke in there somewhere. Uh, but, but no, you know, I, I still have um, aspirations to maybe going back to graduate school for a PhD in science at, at one point in the future. And, you know, who's, who's going to say if, if I will do that or not? I don't know. I am, you know, an older uh, student and uh, came into a uh, undergraduate program, you know, in my late 20s. So, you know, time is, is you know, Clicking along. So, you know, we'll see. But in the, in the, in the least immediate future, I, I definitely plan to, you know, teach for several years. And no matter what I do, science education, whether I get a PhD and go into becoming a research scientist or not, will, will always be in my future and be very important to me. Well, if you do decide to uh, apply to grad school, I bet you you might be able to get Chuck to write you a letter. Oh, without a doubt. Yes. Chuck, do you promise me? I do. Um, and and I, I, I will definitely tell them how you turned me around. <laughs> I saved Chuck Nice. How you saved my life with science. Yes. Well, it's, it's, it's great having you on, Daniel. And whatever you're doing to those kids, uh, you know, keep it up because we're, we're very impressed. And uh, I think we're going to take a break now, uh, and then we will come back with more Star Talk All-Stars, and we'll uh, read a few more of these Cosmic Queries 8th grade edition. Welcome back to Star Talk All-Stars. I'm your host, David Grinspoon. On Twitter, I'm Dr. Funky Spoon, and I'm here with Chuck Nice. Yes. And on Twitter, Chuck Nice is Chuck Nice Comic. That's right. At Chuck Nice Comic. Go ahead and uh, go ahead and look me up. Yeah, look look him up. You won't. Re- well, you might regret you it. You probably but, will regret yeah, it. And that is the goal of my Twitter feed: <laughs> is to make you regret getting on Twitter. I probably regret it a couple times a day at least. <laughs> but, anyways, uh, yeah. Today we're uh, doing uh, cosmic queries. Are you smarter than an eighth grader? And we're also joined by um, eighth grade teacher. Eighth grade science teacher Daniel Peluso from Arroyo Vista Charter School in Chula Vista, California. Yeah, and uh, and Daniel has um, helped us uh, get these uh, these questions from these students who seem to, in their questions, indicate a lot more knowledge about astrobiology than, frankly, a lot of college educated yeah. people have. So, Daniel, let me ask you: are, uh, Is this an AP class? Are these kids uh, just regular kids? Because you know they seem. You know, they don't seem stupid. And I, <laughs> no, I they, tend to think of eighth graders as being kind of stupid. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, these these kids are really, really smart. Now, uh, Arroyo Vista uh, does, uh, was just actually awarded the Blue Ribbon 
by the Department of Education for cool. their high performance. Um, but, you know, I, I, my philosophy and, a, and the philosophy of many educators is that, you know, you have to believe in your students no matter, you know, what school you're at. And if, if you believe in them and you believe that they, they can do the things that you want them to do and learn what you want them to learn, then they will. And everyone's capable of, you know, amazing things. You just have to believe in that. Well, see, there, therein lies my problem. <laughs> I don't believe no, in but I, I mean, I can tell just from the amount of interaction we've had that you do teach from a, a place of, of respect for for the students, and that definitely gets gets mirrored back in in, in the way they interact with you and in the way they've interacted with me. It's it's so cool that that um, that we can have this interaction. You know, where it, we're 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 in this new age where um, it, things can meaningful interactions can happen non locally. And, you know, we're all, like, freaked out by what's happening right now with all this online disinformation and fake news. And, you know, there's there's some negative aspects to this weird new world we're in that we're trying to figure out. But the fact that we can do this science education across the continent, the fact that we are now talking to you and we're all talking to all these Star Talk listeners out there, there's some kind of amazing potential here, too, if we can tap into it. Absolutely. And speaking of tapping into, let's uh, let's go to our question. Questions from uh, from Daniel's students. Uh, this is from Maria R. Um, Maria R. wants to know this, Dr. Funky Spoon. Uh, what advice would you give to children, teens, and even adults who are interested in following a career in astrobiology? Yeah, great question. Uh, you know, how do you become an astrobiologist? Uh, it, as uh, as was mentioned earlier, as, as Daniel said, astrobiology is is interesting because it's an interdisciplinary field. Mm-hmm. There are people in astrobiology who basically just studied physics in school. There are people in the field who basically just studied biology in school or chemistry. You can come at it from a lot of different angles. So honestly, what I would say is if you are interested in astrobiology, just get a good background in science. You know, read widely, um, hit the books, um, get decent grades, go to college, and you can specialize in almost any any science in college. You can major in physics or chemistry or astronomy or earth science, geology, and then, you know, you get that solid background in almost any science. and then you can go to grad school and, and study astrobiology. You know, the other thing I would say is, like, expose yourself to, uh, to ideas widely. Read, go to lectures, and then, and then get, um, meet people who inspire you and, and sort of um, get in their face a little bit and get them to hire you, give you a summer internship or a summer job. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, that's what I did when I was oh, an undergraduate. I, one I of thought my, you meant get in their face like, come on, is there really intelligent life in the world? Tell me now. Well, that'll, that'll be how you attract their attention. And then if they don't kick you out on the curb, right. they might give you a they job. They might give you a job. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. But no, I mean, that's what I did when I was an undergraduate. One of my professors uh, was just like, I thought he was what he was talking about was so cool. And I pestered him and got him to give me a summer research job. And so uh, that's... A great way to sort of expose yourself to research and then decide if that's really what you want to do with your life. Cool. Well, Maria, all right, that's a very good question. Do you know Maria, uh, Daniel? Oh, I sure do. Hello, Maria. It's Mr. Peluso. Awesome <laughs> question. Awesome question. Uh, well, one, th- Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. one thing about Maria, too, is she's a great artist, and she included a, uh, a drawing with her question with an alien on a planet, and the alien said, I would like to stay a secret. Nice. <laughs> that's that's a really astute thing because one uh, one interesting wrinkle is 
when we talk about detecting aliens, we assume they're not trying to hide from us. Right. If they were, then all of our assumptions about the scientific method might be a little bit off. Right, because they're actually adhering to the prime directive and yeah, yeah, not they're, interfering They're with saying us. whatever you do, make sure that we know their protocol and that we evade it. And so you can, you can let them detect one SETI message, but don't let them get, let them get, get that two. second one, and right. then they'll deny we exist. Right. That's, that's very cool. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Maria. <laughs> All right. Let me see here. I have a, a very good question from uh, Emma G., who says, Dr. Grinspoon, this will be a rather short question and possibly considered irrelevant, but I will ask it anyway. Come on, Emma, you got to have a little more faith in yourself, girl. <laughs> All right. How did you become interested in astrobiology? Hold on, I got another one. <laughs> How likely do you think it is that there's even primitive life outside of Earth's confines? Sorry, that was more than one question, but I had to ask both. It was just that pressing. Wow, I love it. <laughs> do you know Emma? Oh, of course I know Emma. Emma has a wonderful scientific mind, and I think she'd make a great scientist one day. She's also a big Star Trek fan, I think. Ah, yeah. now she's now I'm an Emma fan. Yeah, me too. You know, I love that. I love. First of all, I've got a niece, Emma Grinspoon, Emma G. So there's an Emma G in my life who 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 I'm very fond of. But also, her question is is great, and it's funny too because she starts off saying it'll be short, and it's not short, and then she says it's. It's possibly irrelevant, and it's not irrelevant. It's very relevant. So, <laughs> but but anyways. So first of all, she said, "How did you become interested in astrobiology?" And and you know, really, when I was um, in eighth grade, there were all these new missions happening. The first mission to Mars, the first landing on Mars, happened a little bit after that. When I was sixteen years old, the Viking mission. And uh, the first mission to Venus, um, the first Russian landing on Venus, happened when I was 15. Mm -hmm. So it was like I was into science fiction, of course, you know, 2001 A Space Odyssey and all these uh, movies and books. And I was really into space and aliens. And then there was all this real stuff happening, the first spaceship to Venus and Mars. And to me, that all mixed together in my mind. I just was like, space, it's so cool. And then I discovered you could actually do that for a living uh, if you played your cards right. And so I was basically just, it's what I, what captured my imagination when I was little, and I just kind of kept going with it. Um, that's how I became interested. And then your second relevant question, Emma G., how likely do I think it is that there's even primitive life outside Earth's confines? Great question and very articulately phrased. It, it really is. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. And... Um, I think it's quite likely, but the way you phrased it was really good because it is a question right now of probability. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, we don't have solid evidence. And as a scientist, um, you know, if you say, do you think there's life elsewhere? And you make me give a yes, no question, I'll say yes, because I think more likely than not, there is. Mm -hmm. But then if you... Um, one, if you dig a little farther, I'll say, well, really what I believe is there's a high probability there right. is because there's all these reasons why there ought to be based on what we know about life on Earth and based on what we know about other environments, but there's still that big if. Right. What if there's something really weird about Earth and its early history that we haven't discovered yet that made Earth really um, uniquely um, uh, viable for life. Right. We don't know that for sure. Right. So, so we're following our hunches and we're trying to gather more information. And, and you know, the, the answer to your question is, I think it's it's really um, 
likely, and I like the way you asked it, that, that there was even primitive life. But, but you know, we have to keep searching, and, and um, you know, the, that's the way we learn. We learn through exploration. We can theorize all we want, but the universe will answer our questions when we go out and, and ask them. Absolutely. And see, I like to just think of it as, no, we're it. <laughs> Get used to it, baby. Only game in town. All of this is just for me. So, <laughs> so you're basically Let's... saying all of astrobiology is a bunch of hooey. No, no, not at all. <laughs> Should I leave right now, Chuck? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I never even thought of it that way. <laughs> all right, here we go. Uh, this one is from Natalia. And Natalia, wow, man, I got to tell you. Uh, 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 Daniel, do you know Natalia? Because Of course. Wow. Uh, is she is she a smart kid, ma'am? Because I got to tell you, I'm going to read her question, and uh, I, I just I, I don't know where she gets this stuff, but it's fantastic. Dr. Grinspoon, how did amino acids and other complex carbon compounds found in cometary bodies get here? How does the presence of water on another planet present the likelihood of life? And three, would all other life on other planets be the same or similar to the life on Earth? What are the factors that contribute? Damn, Natalia, why you got to show off so much? <laughs> I swear I had nothing to do with helping her with that question. Yeah, that, wow. was, that was one of the questions that when, that when I saw it, I thought, wait a minute. Yeah, are these really eighth graders? Yeah, <laughs> no, but you know what? I, I felt the same thing when I read them, too. No, you know what? I can, I can tell, you know, there's, uh, there's the way she wrote the question. You can tell that it's these are genuine uh, you know, inquiries like that, that, that this is like a burning, like you can feel it when you read the question from mm-hmm. her. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, she had, she had a drawing with hers too. And it was quite amazing. She had a picture of DNA splitting and a uh, galaxy, I think with like a pulsar or something on it. Wow. Wow. And, and mm-hmm. this is one of the questions that made me, made me want to say, Hey, you kids, you know, you're probably smart enough. If you stop right now, you know, you could take the next few years off, <laughs> you know, from school. Yeah, yeah. You're doing all right. But <laughs> and, and did they get extra credit for the uh, drawings, or are they just sucking up to you, Daniel? <laughs> <laughs> we'll see about getting them extra, some extra credit. All right. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> so so to address Natalia's question, um, so how did the, amin- the amino acids and other complex carbon compounds found in cometary bodies get here? So what she's talking about is, you know, amino acids are these uh, the, basically the building blocks of proteins, proteins right. which are one of the fundamental biomolecules. That basically what we're made out of is proteins. Um, and uh, those are the, the those are also the the chemicals inside our cells that that control the reactions that make everything else. It's a, you know we are proteins to a large extent, and amino acids is what build them. And so yeah, when we find amino acids in outer space or in comets or in meteorites, it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. It tells us the stuff that probably was the basic building block of life here is flying around through the universe and landing on other planets too. That's very promising. How did they get here? Well, they got here by comets crashing into the Earth. And um, there's a ama- you know, because obviously uh, there's comets flying around in space. Every once in a while, one of them hits the Earth. When the Earth was young, there were a lot more things hitting it before space sort of, the solar system sort of cleared out from all those collisions. Now, the one thing that's maybe problematical about that is what does the collision itself cause such a big fiery explosion that it destroys all the amino acids? And we were worried about that for a while, but there's a couple reasons why that's probably not a problem. One, the chemical reactions are such that, yeah, some of them get destroyed in that fireball, but then as the fireball cools, some of those reactions happen and, and they, they reform. But also, comets, as they fly around the solar system, are always 
squirting off gas and dust. That's why you see a tail. And that cometary dust is also full of amino acids and organic compounds. And some of that cometary dust hits the earth and kind of wafts down slowly. So that's another source of these juicy biochemical building blocks that come from comets that don't have to go through that fire explosion because it's just the dust that comes in. So, so, so there's a couple e- of ways. So it's either a, uh, a violent crash or a light dusting. Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but the answer is, Natalia, there's a couple of ways, and then we think they do end up here and probably helped contribute to forming life. Now, how does the presence of water on another planet present the likelihood of life? Well, you know, again, this is, a, in a way, a form of educated guesswork because there is, and this gets to, to your, your last question, which is uh, maybe I'll answer them together, which is, would all life on other planets be the same or similar to life on Earth? So we have this kind of what we think is an educated guess that life elsewhere, maybe not always, but frequently will require water. Water is uh, the basis of all life on Earth. And Mm -hmm. if you look around Earth where there's water, there's life. And where there isn't water, there isn't life. And it's because our cells are not only organic compounds like amino acids, they are water. And they're what happens when, when amino acids and things move around and react in water. Mm-hmm. So our guess is that that's the case on other planets too. But you're right to ask the question, and we could be wrong. There could be some other basis of life that we just haven't been smart enough to think about. So mm-hmm. as we explore the universe, then uh, that is one of the questions we have to keep in mind. Wow. Um, that's a great question, Natalia. Thank they you. They were all great questions. Yeah, man. Uh, Daniel, you should be proud, man. Your students are aces. Yeah, great, great um, students. Thank and, you. and obviously a very gifted teacher. All right. Well, we are out of time. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks a lot, Chuck. Uh, It's a pleasure. And I am David Grinspoon, aka Dr. Funky Spoon, reminding you to keep exploring the universe and always keep it funky. Oh, yeah. You've been listening to Star Talk All-Stars. This is Star Talk. Star Talk.